This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. The city of Hamilton has forced a local group to remove anarchy, an anarchy symbol uh, from its headquarters, saying that it is hate material. Uh, they took the direction from Hamilton police, but police say that's not the case. But what constituents... Uh, but what constitutes, rather, hate material. Uh, we're we're going to talk about this, and, of course, uh, this in relation to uh, remember, of course, what happened in March and the uh, Lock Street vandalism. There was also lots of chatter between these two uh, organizations, or these two uh, uh, groups, I should say. And, uh, of course, uh, the Tower has denied all of that. Uh, that being said, more on that case, uh, Cedar Hopperton, who was uh, the person accused in, in all of this in the uh, with the We Are the Ungovernable uh, March Down Lock Street, the left wing extreme uh, group, which, uh, of course, smashed windows, did damage to cars and such. Uh, Cedar Hopperton released on bail, uh, been in custody since uh, early April, part of the deal, staying out of Hamilton and uh, not involving in this sort of uh, activity. That being said, this slogan, or this uh, symbol rather, was uh, up on uh, this location, and of course it has been brought down. Let's bring in Ross McLean, crime specialist, security expert, rossmcleansecurity.com, and offer his opinion on all of this. Ross, thanks for taking the time. We appreciate this. Yeah, good to be with you. I think this is a pretty important topic. So, uh, Ross, uh, th- this symbol uh, of anarchists, anarchy, it's an A with a circle around it. Is this considered some sort of hate symbol? Well, that's or, is it a, or is it just a symbol for a political movement? Yeah, well, that, that's the discussion that's, that's ongoing. There's, you know, this world is so crazy these days, Scott. Uh, some people use words very, very carelessly. Right. Like, you know, if you disagree with someone, you could be called an alt-right or a Nazi or something when all you are is maybe, like you said, someone with a political disagreement. You know, we use words carelessly like that. And when we talk about words like hate and what's hate speech or hate symbols, it comes out the same way. We're we're somewhat maybe too loose in using that. But the criminal code um, is somewhat definitive on it. And then it's very hard to get a prosecution for anything under hate speech or hate symbols is difficult. And where does this one fall in? I mean, that's really the question. So uh, does there have to be some sort of precedent, some sort of uh, uh, relation to it being used in a scenario uh, that, that promotes hatred? Yeah, absolutely there does. I mean, it's interesting that, you know, as, as you reported, that the property standards people uh, claimed that it was a hate symbol that needs to be taken down, and they got their guidance from the police. Uh, the police uh, hate crimes unit says that, well, no, we didn't tell them it was a hate symbol. That's incorrect. I, I think that the truth lies somewhere in the middle in that the property standards people likely would have communicated with the police at some point, And they would have gotten a copy of, uh, and people can find this on the Internet, the RCMP's Guide to Terrorism and Extremism. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a public guide that's available. And in there it gives a definition of hate crimes and terrorism and extreme groups. And certainly listed within those groups is the anarchist groups and that symbol of the A with the circle around it. It's under left-wing extremism, so it's considered an extremist uh, symbol by the RCMP, not a hate symbol. Uh, So there's the difference. I think therein may lie some of the confusion, but uh, your property standards people probably have something. And we all know when it comes to property standards, the things you can find 
in there. You might not be able to fly the Canadian flag in some places, right, based on what property standards may say. So they probably have the power to do that. So uh, is it a controversial interpretation of hate speech? Well, is it? It's As not, some have said? It's not hate speech, because in order to be hate speech, yeah. uh, you have to be part of, uh, of a designated group. Yeah. The anarchists don't point to what's called a designated group. This is the thing that starts to get you know, unfair and overly broad about hate speech. I mean, hate is in the eye of the beholder, if you will, in many cases in the eye of the recipient. And in order to, uh, to, to be qualified for hate speech, it has to be against one of the listed identifiable groups. And not only that, the police, after investigating it, have to decide and go to the attorney general to get permission to uh, prosecute for it. And they are very, very loath to do that. It's a very difficult position for the police these days. Uh, Princewell Ogban, the head of the Hamilton New Anti-Racism Center, says most anarchy groups in the past have been seen as anti-racist or anti-hate. They are pro-people and anti-government. Um, again, how do you decipher between a political movement and something that's promoting hate? I guess if you're associated or thought to be have been associated with... Um, um, you know, activities such as what happened on Lock Street here back in March. Um, I mean, can that be seen as hate? I guess it can be. You can call it hate, but you can't prosecute it as hate. Yeah. You can say what it's motivi- motivated by. You know, and, and your quote from that uh, racist uh, racism uh, person who re- represents that group is just funny in itself, right? They're against government, but they're for people. Well, yeah. I mean, government is made up of people. So yeah. if, you're, if you're in a democracy, that's the way it works. <laughs> yeah. So you, you get into this upside down world of splitting hairs from, you know, people who I think have maybe taken the wrong courses in university when they look at things, Scott. But it, it's a really a serious issue. I helped uh, a couple of religious leaders here in Toronto uh, make a complaint to the police last year about the Al-Quds rally that happened in Toronto, where they were displaying the flag of a designated terrorist organization. They were de- it's designated, the symbol is designated, it's designated for terror, it's designated for hate. And they were playing a song uh, that was the rally uh, cry of this designated terrorist group that included all sorts of language I'm not going to repeat about doing things to people. We we made the complaint to the police, copied it to the chief of police, they took an official report, and uh, there's been absolutely zero feedback on it, even though it's pretty much a clear violation of, uh, of the hate laws. So the, there's a real reluctance to prosecute uh, or, or late charges with the police and the attorney general, I think. So where is this going? What's happening here? Uh, obviously, the city has used its power to remove this. Uh, is there a lawsuit coming, do you think? I don't think so. I think, I think that the city is right uh, to use whatever, whatever powers it has. to. Uh, if it sees someone putting up an extremist group sign, that's certainly a recognized extremist, extremist group sign uh, based on the RCMP, that they do what they can to tamp this stuff down. I have seen over the course, I think we've all seen over the course of the last four or five summers where these anarchist black bloc group people have become more and more emboldened to create violence, cause injury, perhaps cause death, set things on fire, uh, smoke bombs. Uh, They carry uh, weapons into protests. They attack people. And I think the government is being a little bit too slow in dealing with them, uh, personally. So the fact that these self-described anarchists were responsible for what happened on Lock Street back in March, 
and uh, this organization called the Tower on Concession, which said that it had no relation to this march or these people whatsoever, uh, yet certainly didn't, uh, well, they sounded like they, they, they were supporting them, certainly not condoning this sort of thing. So the fact that they were anarchists and there's an anarchist symbol on this uh, on this structure, I mean, d- does, do we link one to the other automatically? Well, I think it's fair to, le- to uh, link them in a in a public discussion, public action sort of way. I think that the police and, you know, the trial that will be upcoming uh, and the efforts that they put on to prove their case uh, will certainly be something else. And I, and I hope that the police are going to spend more time and effort on looking at these groups. We're about to come back into the summer again. We're going to see more of this. And uh, some of these things are t- terrible. I mean, I, I, I worked with one group uh, looking at the CCTV of riots, that went on down in the States where one black block anarchist person went up and sprayed some chemicals in the eyes of a person and the person was blind. They've mm. lost sight in both eyes because it was sprayed in their face. And uh, hopefully they're going to have a prosecution on that, but it's getting more and more dangerous and it's, you know, they're striking right at the heart of our cities. And so I think it really needs to be dealt with now because it's getting more and more out of hand with each passing year. Uh, that being said, if cities embark on this sort of activity, like removing these uh, sort of symbols, are they opening themselves up to litigation? I don't think so. I think they know how to, how to work within, within the rules, the things that they have. I think it's a responsibility. You know, you, you, know, you and I talk uh, quite often about a variety of different crime issues and violence issues, and I think that it, the, the city politicians and the provincial politicians need to get on side with the community and help to protect the communities. I mean, I don't think that there's anybody who wants to have a business or live next to uh, one of these groups who are anarchists who, who do this sort of thing. I don't, I don't think it's wanted by the community. So the community has to look how to deal with it within the law uh, and within the provisions and do it correctly. But it needs to be paid attention, not just ignored. And so far, it's for the most part been ignored. Uh, the person that was accused in the Lock Street vandalism had been in jail since uh, early April, then ground, granted bail with conditions including staying out of Hamilton, not participating in any rallies uh, or demonstrations, uh, and living at uh, their parents' home uh, in Toronto. Uh, should this person have been in jail for so long? Well, as I recall, and I don't, I don't actually have my notes in front of me to look at this, I believe the person that was charged... It's quite an extensive history mm-hmm. of participating. Mm-hmm. Uh, this, is, this is my understanding. I served. To, I could stand to be corrected. Like I said, I have my notes in front of me for that one. But I believe he's got quite a long history uh, going to and causing, um, let's say, more violent uh, sort of protests right. mm-hmm. in different cities. So, I mean, he's got a record for that. And the, the judges, I mean, if, if they're keeping you in these days, because the judges are very, very quick to let everybody out, they, they have a reason for it. So... Uh, do you think that we are going to see more of this, uh, considering what has happened uh, and what had happened in, in March with, the, uh, with, with what happened on Lock Street? Uh, people were very concerned about it. There was, uh, of course, uh, a great day of appreciation the week after, supporting the street and such. And then all of this seemed to disappear. Uh, you know, one person was arrested. It seems like uh, one person is sort of the ringleader. The rest are all just followers. Uh, and, and have no real organization in that respect. Uh, with something like this and the symbols at this other, uh, at the tower on, on concession, uh, do we have any reason to believe this is going to continue, or do you think police have a handle on this? 
No, it's going to continue. It's going to continue. What you're seeing is a lot of people are living out their lives on social media these days. And they're, you know, these groups organize through social media. They have meetings through social media. They promote events through social media. Uh, they get people involved in them, some who may be, uh, let's say, reasonable, passionate persons who believe they have a cause. But they also attract a lot of, quite frankly, uh, nut bars and unbalanced people uh, who are quite happy to commit violence and do issues. I mean, you look at that woman who went down and shot up uh, Google headquarters, right? Her, her deal was PETA. She was a PETA terrorist if you will, for, you know, cruelty against animals. Yeah. Took out a gun and started shooting people. And and what you're seeing is there's more and more a belief that you're allowed to do this and you can do this, and it's considered protest, not violence, not rioting, not wearing a disguise to conspire to commit criminal acts, because we're not really treating them that way. All right. I know you got to get out of here uh, soon. I just want to take the last minute and ask you a quick update on the MacArthur uh, case and uh, what, is, what has happened within his apartment. Well, they've cleaned it out. They've gone over it inch by inch. I thought there was a very dramatic quote by Detective Zinga the other day. He said, we wanted to cover every square inch of that apartment, Scott. He said, so if there was a hair there from a murder 10 years ago that could prove that a victim was there that we didn't know about, we did not want to overlook that hair. So uh, all I can say Hmm. is what focus and what persistence and what dedication to trying to solve all the different cases with that, Scott. uh, it's, It's really heartening. Ross McLean has been with us, crime specialist, security expert, RossMcLeanSecurity.com. As always, Ross, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you, Scott. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Uh, This morning, Finance Minister Bill Monroe, or Bill Morneau, rather. Bill Monroe, I believe, was a a bluegrass guy. But both of them are singing. One from the grave, one from the podium. Uh, this morning, uh, Finance Minister Bill Morneau outlined three steps the government would take to further develop the Trans, Mount, uh, Trans Mountain Pipeline project. Also going on to say if Kinder Morgan chooses to bail, there's lots of other people that want to step up to the plate here. Here's what the Finance Minister had to say. If Kinder Morgan isn't interested in building the project, we think of plenty of investors would be interested in taking on this project, especially knowing that the federal government believes it's in the best interests of Canadians and is willing to provide indemnity to make sure that it gets done. Here's what Saskatchewan Premier Scott Moe had to say about We that. don't see construction starting on this pipeline. We see a deadline that has been laid in the sand of May 31st by the, the proponent of the pipeline, the proponent that has went through uh, all of the regulatory approvals, uh, has those in place, and, and uh, we just say construction should begin. All right, let's bring in Dan McTagg, former Liberal MP, Consumer Affairs critic, analyst, GasBuddy.com with us now. Dan, thanks for taking the time. Appreciate this. What a crazy day it's been for me as well. If uh, I just found out that uh, one of the candidates, Doug Ford, is going to uh, reduce uh, gas taxes, 10 cents a litre. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, we'll come back to that. <laughs> uh, it, it, how many balls you got in the air there, Dan, today? Uh, well, I still have to get to my American friends. I do there you go. My down there so there we go man uh it sounds like from this statement that kinder morgan is out is that the case or are they using this to leverage kinder morgan well i think uh, kinder morgan uh, will make its decision one way or another it hasn't said anything it looks like it's on track to uh potentially moving off uh it's also facing uh other protests that we saw from greenpeace and other uh folks yesterday uh as it uh it's terminal in Vancouver, so uh, in, in Seattle. So it looks like uh, you know the company itself 
he is uh, uh, probably getting cold feet. They're not in the business of uh, political activism. Um, and so I would think the, uh, the prospect here is that the federal government is uh, prepared to invite uh, with uh, with certain uh, guarantees someone else to come in uh, and uh, and fulfill the promise. So who would that be, Trans Mountain? Uh, would that be TransCanada Pipelines that lost its bid on uh, on uh, the Keystone XL uh, and on Energy East? Or would that be uh, Enbridge that uh, saw its proposal, a very legitimate proposal, which probably would have been near completion by now had the federal government not said blocked it? M- might they be the other ones that would come in? Hard to say, but if someone's going to guarantee you can't lose, uh, I think you'll probably find a few suitors at the expense of the Canadian public. Why then, if there are incentives there, why would Kinder Morgan pull out? And why would someone else, I mean, if you're sitting there and you're one of these other pipeline companies, aren't you saying, well, Kinder Morgan didn't take it, why should we? Well, do you need to go with, you know, do you need uh, the continued hassle? Yeah. Um, because this is likely to lead to uh, a number of other people being arrested and uh, uh, people want to commit civil disobedience, uh, you know, completely dismissing the, the vitality this has to the interests of every single Canadian in this country. Uh, you know, why would you get involved with that kind of stuff when you can build a pipeline in six months in the United States, regulation in three months, uh, whereas Canada decides that, uh, the you know, the, the sort of, uh, two heads of Janus, uh, where, yeah, we want it. No, we're going to do everything we can to stop it. Uh, the reality, I think, uh, is that uh, companies don't operate in that kind of uh, political quagmire uh, created by environmentalists who are obviously uh, calling the tune here. And I think uh, they're basically saying we can do a lot more, make a lot more for our shareholders. Working in the United States and importing oil from, say, Mexico or other nations, if we need heavy oil, then Canada, since Canada's decided it doesn't want to be in the business of uh, generating revenue for itself. So we have moved on this project from a company, Kinder Morgan, willing to pay the freight and do the whole thing, to now we're offering other companies money to pick up what they're leaving behind because right. they're bailing. And that's what happens in an environment where... You, uh, you have one particular premier uh, led by three green seats. So something to think about when you want to vote green in the next election um, that are basically holding the country hostage. Uh, companies are leaving in droves, $60 billion in lost economic opportunity, uh, a weakened Canadian dollar costing you and I 15 extra cents a litre at the pumps. Uh, this is getting, this has really become a gong show. And uh, it, it doesn't say, it says a lot about investments, generally speaking, in Canada should not meet the green sniff test. So uh, could it be here, and I'm just trying to play devil's advocate here, could it be that uh, Morneau is trying to leverage Kinder Morgan back into talking, saying, well, fine, we'll let someone else continue the work that you've done. Does Kinder Morgan, does that interest them at all? Yeah, I think he's giving what what amounts to a guarantee, not that he's going to take over the pipeline. But why give it to everybody if Kinder, like you know, this deal was supposed to be between Kinder Morgan, Kinder Morgan, and the government. Now Morneau is opening it up to everybody else. So well, I think it's lost faith. Yeah, we look like we look really silly, don't we? As a country, we the federal government has jurisdiction. I mean, Morneau used the word what uh, BC is doing un- is unconstitutional, but they're not prepared to bring in what is necessary to start the project going. So Kinder Morgan saying, look, we're not we're going to be part of the sham. We don't uh, think we should risk, even if you're prepared to provide us guarantees. We've had enough of your shenanigans, and I think for Canada and for our future of our oil industry and our future of our prosperity, uh, there's a lot at stake here. And Canadians had better, you know, waking up to the reality that uh, when you when you send these kind of messages and allow a handful of uh, environmentalists who are well funded by large foreign organizations to target singly Canada uh, to the exclusion of all other nations, 
you know, don't be surprised when the hospital bed waiting lists uh, continue to rise, when the finances of this country continue to slip into uh, heavy deficits. This has a lot to do. There's a correlation between the two. And we can just start with what you're paying at the pumps. So what happens on May 31st? Well, I think Kinder Morgan will say whether they are going to stay in the game or uh, with the guarantees or whether they're packing up and leaving. We haven't heard from them yet. And I, Since I, they already have so much invested in this, Dan, isn't, or wouldn't they be the, the obvious ones to take this bid? Oh, TransCanada put a billion bucks into Energy East before the federal government uh, caved into the same group of uh, uh, environmental vandals um, and uh, you know basically wrote it off. And when they write something off, it means... Uh, potential money that would otherwise be spent in the country. So, yeah, they put $1.5 billion. They've built up to the Alberta-BC border. Um, they've made changes where they can to alter uh, some of the work, uh, preliminary work at the, uh, at, at, at the uh, Burnaby end. But uh, this is as far as they can take it. It says something, though, about the integrity of your customs, your regulations. Uh, when the federal government says, yes, you have our permission, you've gone through hula hoops to, uh, you know, burning rings of fire to get to this point. And now, of course, someone throws at the last second a spanner into the works who is absolutely committed to use every tool they have there at their expense, not to determine provincial jurisdiction, but in fact, to, uh, to, to block what is in the fundamental national interest. On that alone, Trudeau should have simply said, uh, I'm coming in and I, whether you like it or not, I will have, uh, you know, as many police escorts as I need. This thing's going ahead, and if you have a protest, we'll do what Trump did with uh, with DAPL, with the uh, Dakota Access Pipeline. Bring in uh, the necessary security to get it done, and uh, the uh, the protesters uh, will be put in jail. Uh, so, um, why would Kinder Morgan give a May 31st deadline if they weren't holding out for something? Are they holding out for something the government hasn't given them? I think they have to look at the fact that the spade should have been in the ground by now. Remember, they made the proposal back in 2014, 2013, December 16th, 2013. Uh, that's five years ago, almost five, four and a half years ago. The pipeline could have been built twice by now. So it's one thing to wait two and a half years to go through, the, you know, uh, again, uh, go through all of the hurdles to get this thing approved and uh, the 157 conditions, which make it by far and away the most the safest pipeline anywhere in the world. But if at the end of the day, you're going to allow the federal government to allow the provinces and other uh, miscreants to uh, play their little uh, foolish games, uh, then, uh, you know, the company has no choice. And I think it's made it very clear uh, the writing is likely on the wall. So what can the prime minister do right now to get this built? Well, if I were the prime minister tomorrow, I would do exactly what needs to be done. This is federal jurisdiction. And, yeah, we'll settle it in the courts, but uh, get an injunction. Because uh, in the meantime, the reference, the constitutional uh, angle on this is clear, as is the environmental angle. The federal government has taken the time. It's made very sure that any type of spill, any type of remediation is covered both by the federal government. But more importantly, the kind of uh, product that's being put there will not damage the environment, especially in the salt waters where this uh, will travel. So, um, so what? Said to the federal government, just I would said now move. So, what's the prime minister waiting for now? What is his excuse for the holdup now? Don't know. You'd have to ask him. He seems to be saying we want this, we love it. We, but you know, again, you can say you can't things. wish it, Bill. What is he going to do to actually oh, get I it mean, done? He can, he can put legislation forward immediately and pass it. He's had three weeks now, four weeks now since he said he's going to put legislation forward that will uh, that will make it absolutely clear who runs the pipeline show in this country. That's been determined constitutionally for years. No one has ever questioned that. 
Well, his yeah. out his out is now that well, Kinder Morgan's out. No one else is going to build it, so it's a moot point. Well, then his credibility he loses support that he once got from those uh, from from those uh, on that particular ilk on the far extreme left, and he will lose the credibility of. Uh, pretty much everybody in this country who recognizes that uh, we can't afford to pay another 15 cents a liter because the Canadian dollar is weakened because we're not selling our oil to world markets and because uh, you decided to shut down the, uh, the Northern Gateway pipeline. Um, so, you know, it <laughs> doesn't matter how you look at it. I don't see a positive and upside for him unless this uh, spades are in the ground and uh, uh, a security presence is there to ensure that uh, those who want to protest can do so. But uh, once they come across the line, as the two parliamentarians recognize, you're, you're subject to a criminal offense under the laws of this country. No one's above the law, and that includes environmentalists. So is the Prime Minister getting the reputation of all uh, talk, no action, uh, um, you know, all <laughs> selfie, no action? Well, I, I think I lost an election in 2006 uh, from government when someone styled my leader incorrectly as Miss, Mr. Dithers. Uh, this takes the cake. All right, let's talk about uh, Doug Ford uh, today announced that uh, he would reduce uh, the price of gasoline in Ontario 10 cents a litre. Can he do that? How can he do that? Well, I mean, it's within his jurisdiction. He isn't touching the carbon tax, which I'm sure would have uh, every uh, you know center-left uh, person out there upset because it's okay to tax the daylight out of people. It probably wouldn't upset some of the treaties that uh, Ontario has written or concluded with uh, Quebec and with uh, California. Um but it does mean the federal government will likely reduce, if, if, if the provincial government will be reducing its take, which is $0.10 cents a litre, um, by $0.10. Cents. That would uh, mean about an 11 maybe even a $0.12 cent decrease at the pumps, as long as that uh, tax is not applied. Pretty brilliant, considering the fact that we're up $0.25 cents a litre this time last year, and uh, most people are just not able to... Uh, to handle the uh, the punishing effect it's having on their bottom line, under especially given how quickly this has come up. That's a lot of money. Uh, do you think he can do this? Where does it come from? Uh, well, I think it may very well be that uh, uh, he is going to have to take a look at the revenue stream and uh, figure out where that money is going to come from. I mean, if you're selling 1.2 billion litres of uh, gasoline uh, in the province uh, every month, I'm only giving an estimation, uh, then one would think that uh, $0.10 on that amount uh, would leave the uh, provincial coffers rather, you know, rather challenged. Uh, But I look at it another way. Um, The effect of the HST, 8%, on these rising prices is uh, giving the the provincial government almost a million dollars a day in windfall money. Wow. Uh, so how um, how do you think... It's a temporary measure, I don't know. I, honest to goodness, I, yeah, I, I just heard about it. Uh, yeah. I, I entered the, this conversation. Apparently it happened no more than an hour ago. All right. Uh, we talked about this yesterday. Over 70% of Ontarians think carbon taxes are just a tax grab. That was from a Ipsos poll. Uh, surprised, that, surprised at that number, and does this mean that Ontarians have become cynical over environmental issues? I think they're becoming very cynical with the shenanigans we're seeing in BC. But locally, I think it's uh, four and a half cents a liter. What what do we get in return? People are trying to get into more efficient vehicles. Uh, you know, there's a narrative out there, and I think it's disingenuous uh, that people are somehow buying these big, huge platform V8s, gas guzzlers. When in fact, the reverse is true. Uh, what's also known is that the, uh, the the nature of Canadian consumers is such that, uh, and this is uh, according to people like Dennis DeRosier. Uh, our vehicles are aging. You know, the average age of vehicle out there has moved almost 10 years. Mm-hmm. So I think that's critical to understand. People can't make those adjustments quickly. 
So what does this do for the environmental movement? Because when you think about it, Dan, I'm sure most Canadians, most Ontarians want to preserve the planet for uh, the next generation. And I've said this for years, that uh, the Liberals have been using uh, Canadians, Ontarian sensitivity to the environment as just really a, 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 a vehicle to, to generate revenue for themselves. So, you know, here we are as Ontarians wanting to preserve uh, the environment, and now all of a sudden, because of bad government policy, whether it's a Green Energy Act, this, that, or the other, that now all of a sudden we're very skeptical of that. So well, not only has this government really not done much as far as uh, uh, convincing us to, to be green, but they've taken advantage of it. Well, it looks like the Canadian government is in a situation uh, very much like the provincial government, where all these things are wonderful to talk about, and uh, we can have a debate as to whether they're necessary or not. Uh, but when it starts to cost them, uh, and we're not talking just about four and a half cents here in Ontario, you know, eight cents in BC, seven cents in, 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 in Alberta, heading, doubling in the next three to four years. And if we increase the carbon intensity, in other words, we go to a hundred, two hundred dollars a ton, then, uh, you know, you're looking to add 30, 40, 50 cents a liter at the end of the day. Then I think people have every right uh, to, uh, to complain and say, this is too quick. This is too hard. And what is the effect? What will be Canada's uh, the outcome at the end of the day, if we reduce emissions, if in fact such a thing can happen, given that we were already a clean country to begin with. Uh, natural gas has been around in Canada for a long time. Other nations like the U.S. have just sort of started to deploy it to replace their coal generation. So, you know, the question is, what's the cost-benefit? Yeah, I get the environment, uh, and we can debate that, because a lot of people are starting to say, hang on a second here, we're, we're getting, we are seeing normal weather. Um, but beside, be, beyond the argument, and to some extent the hysteria, uh, how can I make ends meet? And I'm, you know, email after email, people are saying, look, uh, we know you're a liberal. We know you you have issues with this thing. We are having a hard time managing what will be an $1,000 increase to our budgets uh, or our, our, our expenditures this year just on fuel alone. And that doesn't include how it makes its way through the economy in terms of food, in terms of yeah. electricity, in terms of heating, in terms of uh, pretty much everything that's done in this economy. Inflation will be out of control if this isn't managed. So what happens to the cap-and-trade uh, scheme between Quebec and California if the Conservatives get in? Well, I don't think this is going to touch it. I don't, again, I, I, I'm getting this at the same time you are. I don't know if there's any decision on the cap-and-trade. Uh, the 10 cents, from what I understand, from what's been told to me, is that it's going to be taken from the 14.7 cents on every litre of gasoline. It's called a road tax that the province currently gets. Uh, if that does come to be, uh, then, of course, you would see a net decrease of about 12 cents a liter, uh, given that HST of 13% is applied to that 10 cents, that's 11.3, and most gas stations go to the nearest 9 tenths, so about, uh, worst case scenario, 11 cent decrease, Uh, best case scenario, a 12 cent decrease, as long as the provincial government keeps it. Uh, Obviously, uh, the Prime Minister has said if anybody, province doesn't implement their own uh, carbon tax of some sort, that they'll implement one. What is the best way to do this? Uh, why is the government federally going on a carbon tax? We're with Quebec and, and uh, California on a cap-and-trade system. Yeah. Uh, shouldn't there be one system that goes right across the country? <laughs> well, I think it, it satisfied the, uh, you know, the chattering classes that we had to have some kind of a tax earlier on. Um, but what's happened is the federal target in a treaty that they signed at Paris two years ago, is paramount. And it means $50 a ton by January 1st, 2022. So if you're counting 
uh, to prices to remain the same on the carbon tax cap and trade front, forget it. You'll see an additional eight cents a liter uh, larded on to that price permanently for gasoline, about 10 cents for diesel between now and the next two and a half years. Do you feel, Dan, that this conversation is changing? Do you feel the tide turning? Dramatically uh, so. Dramatically so. Uh, Canadians are now starting to re, you know, be reintroduced to high energy prices, and that's just not on for most of them. So what's life like in BC right now? We've only got about 30 seconds to a minute left. Well, uh, it's, uh, it's, 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 people, are, uh, people are complaining. People are finding it difficult to make ends meet. Uh, many people don't drive for kicks and giggles. I mean, many people are out there, they need it for work, they need it for transportation, and even transportation that they use, public transportation, other means of getting around, those uh, modes will also be impacted. Expect higher prices. These are base prices throughout the economy, and it's from everything you do uh, day in, day out, there's an impact on which higher oil and gasoline prices will and diesel prices will eventually make its way through the economy. So none of us are immune. Everybody is now feeling the pinch. Dan McTagg has been with us, former Liberal MP, Consumer Affairs Critic, AnalystGasBuddy.com. Dan, as always, thanks for the time on uh, the pit stop. Uh, rest up and go out again. All right. Thanks, Thank Scott. you. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. A new Ipsos poll shows the majority of Ontarians are concerned about the rising debt and deficit in Ontario with 71% preferring spending cuts to balance the budget. This despite the grocery list that's been coming out from Premier Wynne and uh, Andrea Horvath. And, you know, we have to say the same thing about Doug Ford with now saying he's going to reduce uh, gas, uh, the price of gasoline by 10 cents a litre, taking off various taxes. So very odd that... You know, obviously, Doug Ford seems to be resonating with Ontarians as far as the polls are concerned at this point. How can the other parties be so off base with what's important for the majority of Ontarians? And has the pendulum swung back? How do you explain the majority from all three uh, parties prefer spending cuts, thinking this is finally getting out of hand? Let's bring in Genevieve Tellier, professor, School of Polit- uh, sorry, uh, sorry, School of Political Studies, University of Ottawa, and is with us now. Genevieve, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you very much. Are you surprised, Genevieve, that, that, that these polls are saying that, that more are concerned, more seem to be concerned about the deficit than what originally thought? Yes, I am, because uh, we've been conducting those kind of polls for many years, and normally what we see is that, yes, uh, controlling the deficits is uh, among the top priority of Ontario and our Canadian. But when you come to say, okay, so how do you address that problem? Uh, half of uh, Canadians will say, well, uh, cut spending, and the other half will say increase taxes. But in this poll, we have a different story, which is a, a big majority uh, that are saying, well, uh, cut spending. And so we don't have this balance uh, between Canadians, but it seems, as as the poll says, there's kind of a consensus towards uh, let's go and, and we spend too much, so we have to bring that under control. Can you relate this to, uh, can, can you equate this to the province going too far left? I equate that to two factors. Uh, the first one is the hydro uh, file, hydro bill. And so uh, uh, no, no party has a solution to bring the costs down. And so uh, people are paying more and more and more and they want to stop paying more. And so that's why they, want to have, they don't want to have tax increases. 
The second one is the is the deficit by himself. So in recent weeks, we have seen stories saying that the deficit is going way out of control. We had the Auditor General reports that came out and say, well, it's much more than what we what the government saw. Uh, the three party, the three leader will run a deficit as at least the first year of the mandate, and so they don't have any solution. No one wants to uh, bring down uh, the, the debt or the deficit, and so um, Ontarians are puzzled. So uh, it's going out of control, and it, it's at start to become a serious issue, um, and there are causes for concern about that. So that's my main reading. Of, of so you think that the increase in hydro prices, uh, you know, if I was to ask why this is happening now, why a change in attitude now after you said in the past it's usually been split, mm-hmm. uh, you, lar- you largely blame this on just the cost of rising electricity rates and energy and, and, and it's just costing too much. For the most part, to explain why people don't turn to tax increases, because tax increases have been proposed in the past as a solution, but here we say like we see like about only 20% of voters that would or respondents that will say okay, I would favor tax increases to to try to control the deficit, um, but. Yes, I, I will bring that uh, for hydro. Not necessarily um, the the price pay, uh, in fact, but more about the narrative that is going on around the hydro file, I would say. So as I just said before in the introduction, the big uh, raises, uh, the salary of, of the board, of the, the CEO. Um, how could we explain that? How come everybody is making a sacrifice, but not those who are running the, the hydro one? And that's kind of puzzling. And, and what's the solution for that? So there's no real solution. Um, will firing the CEO keep itself a problem? I'm not sure. Uh, will private um, nationalizing, so buy back Hydro One, also be the solution? That's not sure either. I think that the electricity market's much more complex. And it's a problem that we see not just in Ontario, but up I would say in North America, and so uh, the solution is not there. So all the the the, the story that has been uh, talked about around Arjuan, uh starts to 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 make people concerned. And so, what's the solution? So uh, since you brought up Hydro One, Genevieve, let me ask you your opinion. Are you surprised that they announced these rate increases? Uh, yesterday, right in the middle of a campaign, this does not do any good to uh, Premier Wynne's campaign. And and why would they have abstained from the vote? Uh, I, I don't understand. I'm, I'm very surprised. Um, and I'm wondering how out of touch they are uh, with the, what people are, are experiencing in everyday life. And so, uh, yes, it's, it's a bad judgment, I say, especially in the middle of an electoral campaign. Normally, you abstain to make big decisions. And morally, um, more so, I would say, just thinking about that increase, we're talking about part-time people, people working part-time, having that much money, salary per year. Um, I understand it's typical for a board of that size, yeah. that it's not overly outlandish. Mm-hmm. But that being said, the timing and the optics of this all, clearly Hydro One's not thinking about Kathleen Wynne's election campaign. If anything, it would appear, and how could you not be aware of this? This is going to drive a nail into it. Yes, I, I agree with you, and I don't have any other explanation. I totally agree with you. Um, bad, bad, uh, bad, um, bad judgment from their part. Um, and I would even question, well, all if you compare with other boards, uh, yes, it may be comparable, but we should can question the salary of, of every board, yeah. I would yep. say. Uh, it's a big issue, and so we see inequality going, still increasing, uh, despite concern from people, despite the last economic recession where people start wondering, 
hearing about that, but there's no solution out there. And so you would think that the public sector or quasi-public sector would be an example as Hydro One, and clearly this is not the case. So uh, obviously we know how Ford feels about Hydro One. Why would they do this to win? Uh, is having Ford there <laughs> going to be any better for them? Uh, I don't know. I, I, I probably maybe, uh, you know, sometimes we say a game of chicken, so yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm going to test you. I dare you to do so. Uh, maybe it's going to prove more difficult to fire someone than Doug Ford saw. Do you think Ontarians care about whether he's fired or not? It's the change in attitude that's, uh, you know, impressing them with uh, the PCs? Um, I, I'm not sure. I, I don't know. Uh, we'll see about that. Uh, no, I, really, it's not clear for me. I, so let me ask you this. Where does this this poll that we were talking about, where 71% of uh, Ontarians prefer spending cuts uh, to balance the budget, where does this leave other campaigns, uh, especially that of the NDP? I think for all three parties, and not just the NDP, um, they're going to have to come up with a fiscal their fiscal plan. Uh, we have the NDP, so yes, for them, it's, it's, a, it's a bit more uh, difficult because their numbers are already out there and it's difficult to change in the middle of the campaign. That being said, the two other parties have not presented their fiscal platform and so we don't know how they will balance, if any, if, if they will do. Um, now, yes, that's true. We have 71% of uh, respondents that are in favor of spending cuts, but I would like to know where they see those spending cuts. And yeah. I'm not sure that everybody sees those across the board as being the same. And so you may have conservatives that would say, yes, uh, cuts spendings for uh, uh, corporate welfare, we could say, or uh, dental uh, care, maybe we don't have the means to, to pay for that and that kind of uh, rational. Um, but I'm not sure that uh, a lot of Ontarians will be uh, will agree to spend uh, to cut everything. Mm. So health, we know health is a big issue. It's, as we've been talking a lot during the campaign until now. Education is the same. Uh, mental health and uh, transportation. So where do you cut? And so if you were to ask more precisely where people would do that, I'm not sure we would have that such uh, support for mm. cuts. And that's uh, the kind of consensus also um, for, for those cuts. Good point. Uh, how important are these fiscal platforms? Are these numbers to voters? Do they digest these? Do they know these. Uh, okay, here's our plan, and this is what it's going to cost. Here's our plan. Here's what it's going to cost. How important are these platforms, fiscal platforms, when normally when a, when a, a new government takes over from an old, the first thing they say is, oh, my goodness, the books are way worse than we thought they were. And not only that, we've sort of got proof of that already because of the creative accounting that's going on and the discrepancy between the financial accountability officer and the auditor general. So how much weight do we put into these fiscal platforms before we get in there? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, it's fairly recent. So uh, a few re-election backs, we didn't have those fiscal plans, but now it's becoming the norm. And so we see it and at the provincial, uh, the federal level, in Ontario, in other provinces, um, people don't really pay attention to the details, and those platforms are not very detailed. Also, uh, but it just sends a signal that um, the, the party is um, economically or, or budgetary, fiscally responsible, and so it shows that uh, you've done the exercise. It shows that the party has done the exercise; they know where they are going, and you have an overall view of their proposition. So you look, for example, at 
had a deficit? Is it a high deficit for many years? Or do you want to come back to balance quickly? How will you do that? So in terms of, it's not, it's useful. It's not the major piece, although maybe in this election it could become the major piece because everybody is making announcements and we wonder how it's going to be paved by. But still it attracts attention and it does send a message or a signal about um how important uh, the budget uh, the economy overall is is for that specific party so uh, as i said we don't lose sleep over that but we still we like to see those plans being Presented. Does this survey, which shows that the majority prefer spending cuts to balance the budget, even though, as you mentioned, that might change once they know what's happening and what's being cut, does this survey show that the tide is changing, that the pendulum is swinging back? To where? I'm not sure because uh, back to the conservative or back to back the to the NDP. back to the middle even <laughs> just back to the center somewhere. I I believe that the middle is an advantage because uh, in terms of uncertainty uh, and uh, especially among undecided voters, uh, once you're in the ballot boot, you may think well. I prefer to vote for something that I know that I'm not totally satisfied and with uncertainty and something I really don't know. And yes, that could favor, and especially when the vote is split, and so we see the NDP coming, it seems to increase in support in the polls. Um, and maybe that could favor the liberals up to a point. Now, what I did see with that poll and another one that was published at the same time is that the support is kind of divided in the province. So conservatives are, are much stronger in the east of the province, um, NDP much stronger in the west, western part of the province. And so um, that could change also the dynamics. So liberals are kind of third, except in my own area, uh, Ottawa. Um, so it's going to be hard for them maybe to, to garnish a bit more support. But yes, it's not, uh, it's, as, we, as uh, we say, it's not over until it's over. Hmm. Um, there are still some room for the liberal to a bit uh, gain support. Uh, I've often said we seem to be living in a world of extremes now. Are, are all these provincial parties forgetting the middle? And you know that what uh, the main message is that we are caring about the middle class. So that's the message that we heard. Well, it was funny. The la- well, the last couple of elections, middle class has been has been talked about a lot. But mm-hmm. middle class and middle political view. I mean, it seems that we have extreme right or we have extreme left. Mm-hmm. Uh, the liberals have even gone left to take the NDP out of the picture. You know, so so not even much the middle class. It's just people whose politics are in the middle, where they're fiscally maybe conservative, mm-hmm. socially liberal. I mean, who who's 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 listening to them? Um, yes, I don't think that a lot of li- are listening to them. And, and I wonder if the middle class, uh, as you define it, uh, is not vanishing also. Uh, if you look, what is the typical mm. middle class in Canada? A good job, uh, good future for the years to come for your children. Is it what we have now or, or are we splitting? I was talking briefly to, uh, before about uh, inequalities and, and uh, when we see those, that kind of inequalities, well, uh, the, the middle is kind of vanishing. And so does it exist? And that's one of the questions that I have. Uh, I don't have the answer, uh, but we may wonder about that. Interesting point. Genevieve Tellier has been with us, Professor, School of Political Studies, University of Ottawa. Genevieve, as always, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you very much. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.
The federal government has passed an overhaul to the country's tobacco laws now legalizing and regulating vaping and giving powers to Health Canada to mandate plain packaging for cigarettes. To talk more about all of this, Dave Hammond is with us, Associate Professor at the University of Waterloo in the School of Public Health and Health Systems and is with us now. David, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure. So what are the big changes in this act? What's different now than it was uh, in the past? Well, two things. First, it might surprise your listeners to know that uh, nicotine-containing e-cigarettes have not been legal to sell. Now, obviously, you can walk down Kitchener-Waterloo-Cambridge and buy them, um, so the government hasn't been enforcing that. But the new act makes it legal to sell e-cigarettes with nicotine. We're going to probably see ads and possibly TV newspapers for e-cigarettes and nicotine vaping products. So it sort of legitimizes and regulates that market. And then the second thing is that um, from uh, very soon, we'll see cigarettes with no sort of colors or brand logos. They're going to be with a health warning and a sort of a plain back background and white letters on it. It's called plain packaging, and uh, that'll probably happen in about six months from now. So getting back to, to vaping, why take this stance? Why, why you know, take a product that wasn't available, although I guess it was illegally? Uh, why now regulate that? Well, I know people have probably read different things, but, he, you know, e-cigarettes and vaping are probably harmful, but they're much less harmful than smoking. Mm. And it became kind of uh, very difficult for the government to not allow the less harmful products. At the same time, you can walk to the corner store or go mm. buy a you know bag of 200 cigarettes. Uh, so it's really acknowledging that you know, nobody wants kids using these, but there are smokers who it might help them to stop smoking if they use e-cigarettes. And there's really no reason why it would be more difficult to use those products than the ones that are most likely to kill people, and that is conventional smoking. Uh, when when these first came out and the discussion first started, uh, lots were saying, hey, I'm, I'm quitting smoking. This is helping me get off smoking. Uh, is that part of the reason? Well, I think it is. I mean, people treat these like they're an alien product, but as any smokers out there will know, we, we can have pharmaceutical nicotine patch, nicotine gum. The idea is that you can get your nicotine without the smoke and it might help you stop smoking. Well, some people use these cigarettes the same way. It's just that it's vapor instead of, you know, putting a patch on your skin. Uh, lots of appealing flavors. On the flip side, we know that lots of kids are trying these things. Not many, most of that is just they try them and then they put them down. Um, So we need to keep an eye and make sure that this doesn't actually bring in new kids into the nicotine market. Um, But it probably makes sense for smokers to have access to these things to try and get off the smoking if that's what they're trying to do. How do you keep this out of the hands of kids? Because again, I got a 15-year-old daughter and and she talks about all the time kids vaping everywhere. Look, that's a great point. And you have new ones that look like little memory sticks or flash drives that carry a huge hit of nicotine. I've got kids myself. The one part of this act that, that scares me is that it allows for a lot of advertising and promotion. We'll see ads. For Why nicotine. would they advertise this stuff if they're not advert- if they're making changes to plain packaging and such? Well, the idea is that let them promote the one that's less harmful. Right. But look, I don't think smokers need ads in the newspaper at the Blue Jays game to let them know about e-cigarettes. Um, I'd be more comfortable if we didn't have those as a promotion to young people. But that's the way it is, and we're going to have to see 
what the industry does and whether they respect the principles here or whether they really push it like tobacco companies have. All right, let's talk about tobacco companies and the plain packaging. Do, does plain packaging work? Yeah, it does. I mean, um, what it does is it makes the product less attractive to use. It kind of wipes out the idea that some products are uh, less harmful to use than others. Um, and it's been done in other countries. Uh, and it is kind of, it removes the final tool or piece that the industry uses to say, hey, this cigarette is for girls. Look, it's, it's got pink flowers on it. This one's for a tough guy. And it kind of irons out uh, all the differences between the packs. And, and it makes it very clear that this is a lethal product that kills one out of every two users. And let's, let's not kid ourselves about that. What about the images of dying people? Yeah, so the health warnings are going to stay on there. So that's one of the things that happens is, you know, even more so you look at a pack and you see the health warning, you don't see any competing brand imagery or logo. And from other countries, we know that it makes the warnings even more obvious than before. Uh, um, how do we balance this, getting back to the kids again, how do you balance this as, you know, well, it's at least it's better than real cigarettes, Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and, and, and again, not worry about introducing more people to well, the product because they're thinking, well, it's better for you than cigarettes or it's not as bad for you as cigarettes, but could be interpreted. It's better for you, I guess. You're absolutely right. And uh, the message is not that these are safe, but these are harmful, but nothing is as bad as smoking. And so you're right. You really want to give one message to kids and almost a different message to your adult smokers. And I'm most comfortable with that message coming from public health and the government than I am it coming in the form of advertising. Hmm. Um, So, no, look, it's a big concern. Um, Yeah, we need to do more to support the 5 million smokers in Canada that are trying to avoid dying and and to get them to stop. Um, But I think we can do that in ways without promotional messages by making these available. There's price incentives so that it doesn't cost as much to vape as it does to smoke. But I don't think you need any promotional imagery whatsoever that's going to make these uh, more of a fun product for kids to try. So how will this affect co- the contraband industry? Now I'm flopping back to the yeah. plain packaging. Um, how is that going to affect this? Because we hear so much whenever there's increase in taxes or changes, the corner yeah. store people, whatever, they all talk about the contraband issue. Well, they do. So the Corner Store Association gets money from the tobacco companies. Tobacco companies have been running a campaign for a couple of years saying, a contraband is going to go up. There's no evidence that that's happened in other countries. We have a contraband problem uh, regardless. We had it when we had full imagery on packs. Uh, we need to address that, but uh, there's there's no association between plain packaging and contraband. It's an important issue. The government should stay on it, um, but it's essentially being used as a way to argue against uh, losing their marketing. Uh, marijuana, recreational marijuana coming out in, by the summer. Where does it fit into this discussion? Well, that's it. It's really funny, actually. I think they actually positioned some of the health warnings and, and packaging for, for marijuana because, and this will stretch your listeners' minds, but somewhere around 200, 250 people die every year from cannabis. It's 40,000 for tobacco. So I know we're not used to thinking about cannabis as less harmful than tobacco, but there's really no comparison. So, you know, they've really restricted marketing for cannabis. They kind of have a form of plain packaging, but they've made it a little bit looser than conventional cigarettes. Uh, so I think they're trying to trying to educate us a little bit that, look, it's not to say cannabis is, is, is safe or harmless, 
there's some harm there, but it's it's not quite as bad as conventional cigarettes, and that that requires a bit of a mind shift for most of us. Why is that? Why why David is tobacco so much worse for you than than marijuana? I'll tell you why. It's the smoke. It's people smoke. People use them for the nicotine, and they die from the smoke. If you light anything on fire and inhale it, you're going to inhale. Uh, you know, dozens of carcinogens. So if you smoke marijuana, the smoke from marijuana has just as many toxicants as tobacco smoke. The only difference is that tobacco smokers usually smoke an average of like, you know, 15, 16 cigarettes a day. Even your chronic cannabis user usually smokes less than that. So we need to teach consumers that smoke as a drug delivery mechanism will is lethal frankly. It's why we don't smoke medications. Mm. So cannabis users should know that if they vape it or eat it, they're going to avoid some of those risks that you would get from smoking your drug, whatever drug that is. Uh, how do you, when are we going to know more about these packaging and such? A lot have said nobody has, you know, the, the, the government has made this, uh, has taken the stance, but we don't really know any of the details. When will we know more of that? Well, for cannabis, it's when the act officially is passed, and they're bumping right up. You know, they're hoping to, to legalize in July, uh, maybe early August, and it'll be right up until then. Uh, they've kind of told us what they're going to look like, but nothing will be official until it weaves its way through these parliamentary committees. But, you know, as recently as a week or two ago, our prime minister reasserted that cannabis will be legalized this summer, most likely in July or August, when the the switch will flip and everything will become official. So when it becomes legalized, will everybody will the demand be to vape it then instead of smoking it the way that traditionally it's been done? Well, that's part of the discussion we have to have. And one of the proposed health warnings basically tries to say to people, like, smoke has extra toxins in it. Um, you know, there's other issues with edibles, like so a lot of times people eat too many. Um, and cannabis edibles will come on the market a year later. So we need to educate people that most people can use cannabis without problematic use, but you can reduce your use if you don't smoke it. And if you're using edibles, you should try and educate yourself in terms of how much THC is in there so you don't eat too much. David Hammond has been with us, Associate Professor at the University of Waterloo in the School of Public Health and Health Systems. David, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. My pleasure. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.